It's all about team. It's about the paramedics getting people in, the telephone room setting off those bleeps. It's about the lab staff, the radiology staff. It's about all of those people within the stroke pathway working together to make this work. The facts are there. From the audits that have been done, the mortality has definitely decreased. Hi there, I'm Jerry Stevens. In 2017, I suffered a bleed on my brain, causing a stroke and has changed my life ever since. I thought it would be a good idea to speak to some stroke survivors, their doctors, physiotherapists and cognitive experts that I've met as part of my ongoing recovery. They have some amazing stories to share and advice to give. And over the coming weeks on RTE Radio 1 Extra, we'll explore them with you. Welcome to this week's Strokecast. Uh, joining me this week, it's not a stroke survivor, but somebody who deals with and helps stroke victims on a daily basis. A clinical nurse specialist in stroke, Fiona Connaughton. Thank you so much for joining us today, Fiona. Thanks for having me, Jerry. It's great to have you and thank you for all your help throughout our stories throughout this whole Strokecast series. Uh, Fiona, you work on the front line every day in a, a modern acute stroke ward. And now what goes on and what goes through your mind... When your bleeper sounds, you could be anywhere in the, in the hospital, your bleeper sounds, you get the message, somebody is in an ambulance, they have a clot or a bleed, they're on their way to you. What passes? Do you go into work mode? What goes on? Well, definitely you do go into work mode. I suppose to put into context, we, um, we carry an emergency stroke bleep. So as you said, if the ambulance crew pre-alerts the hospital to say that they're on their way in with what they suspect is somebody having a stroke, our bleeps go off. And that is a team of people whose bleeps go off. So straight away, the, the adrenaline, it does start rushing a little bit. Um, but I think the first thing that comes into my mind is, who are my team? Who's on with me today? And I would rely heavily on the team. Do you know, we've our stroke registrar, Zula, who I think he'll be talking to later on or at a different occasion. And we've also, do you know, very, very well qualified nurses down the ED department as well as the registrars down there. So that's one of the things that go through my mind. And as we head on down um, to the emergency department, I start, you know, to scan around and I see, well, who's actually sitting outside the resource room? Is the ambulance actually in yet? And you start to look, you see the families and you realise this is either a young person or it's an old person, you know. You can start to see the very, very worried expressions in people's faces and you go, is this the family of the stroke patient that has just come through the doors? So it all kicks off. Then you just go directly into the resource and if the ambulance crew is there, which they generally are, you know, we work very, very tightly with the paramedics to get handover, to get, I suppose, that collateral history that we need to make a decision with regarding what route we'll go. Obviously, time is of the essence. What is the most important priority? What do you have to get get stuck into that you must address immediately? Well, as you said, time is of the essence. Time is brain. So the longer we delay, the longer people delay in ringing that ambulance, the that is the difference it makes for the person. So the sooner they call for help, you know the FAST, you've heard of the FAST campaign, it is face, arm, speech, time. It's time to ring, it's time to get help. It's not time to be going having your shower or going to the doctor, it's about getting straight in. Once the person does come in with the ambulance crew, it is about getting the team down to them very quickly. That's why we have those bleeps. 
once they're in, it is about, I think we would um, compare it nearly to that Formula One pit stop. Do you know if anybody watches the um, Formula One, I think way back, back in the 1950s, I think they were doing the pit stops in around, I think it was over a minute. Well, that's what we like to achieve. Not over a minute, but that our team is ready. The team know their roles. They know the tasks that they need to do. So when that patient comes in, everybody carries out their role in a simultaneous manner. So they're cutting out that wasted time. So like the pit stops, they've cut it right down to 1.8 seconds. That's what we try to achieve to get things done in a really, really fast manner so that the person can get the intervention as soon as possible. So it's very much a team effort. It's all about team. It's all about team. I think people forget about those in the background. It's about the paramedics getting people in. It is about the telephone room setting off those bleeps. It's about the lab staff, the radiology staff. It's about all of those people within the stroke pathway working together to make this work. Now, you depend on technology to help you out, particularly in a hurry. Obviously, a CT scan is very important. Yeah, we do rely on CT scans. Big thing with CT scan is really to determine is this a bleed type stroke? So if it is a bleed type stroke, you've gone down a very different pathway. So if what we do, it's standard practice now that people have a CT scan and a CT angio, which is a CT with contrast. So that will highlight to us if there's a big blockage, a big clot sitting in one of the main vessels of the brain. So then we're considering once that scene is thrombectomy, that clot retrieval. So other than that, the big thing that I rely on it is team. And I can't overemphasize that. It's not the machines. Yes, we do need the machines to do um, our patient record numbers. We need um, the machines to process our bloods, all of that. But the big, big thing, it is about the team. It's about communication. It's about who's taken on that leadership role. And it's about, I suppose, as well, working with the family. With a clot, obviously, maybe a thrombectomy is, is an option. The opposite of a clot, we say, is a bleed. What would be the big difference? Well, I suppose, regardless when you're coming, when you've had your stroke time, we don't know what it is. So we do not know when you have that stroke at home. Families don't know. Patients do not know whether this is a clot type stroke or bleed type stroke. So it's all about fast. It is about fast regardless. Even when you come in through the doors of the emergency department with the paramedics, you still do not know. It is time, time, time right up until that CT and straight away you can tell if there's a bleed in the scan. Time is still of essence, but you just take a different pathway. You do not have, I suppose, interventions such as thrombectomy and that clot busting drug for bleed type stroke because it's it's completely contraindicated. You can't you can't give a clot busting drug on top of a bleed or you will cause more damage. Uh, typically, do, uh, is a bleed more common or a clot more common? No, clot type strokes are a lot more common. You're looking at about... 80, maybe 85% to the 15% clot type strokes are a lot more common. Right, I, I had a bleed, so I I went the other direction, as you it were. My direction. treatment went the other direction. Well, hopefully, our patient is in emergency. You've made a prognosis, you've, you've dealt with them, and hopefully they've made it now into the acute stroke ward. Now, what's the main difference in an acute ward to an ordinary ward? Okay. Well, I suppose one of the things that do happen, there's two types. There's a hyperacute stroke unit and there's a stroke unit. 
when somebody goes for a thrombectomy, so that's that clot retrieval, or once they have that clot-busting drug, they go to that more higher dependent unit. So that would be either your hyperacute stroke unit or it would be your higher dependency unit. And that is because they need that one-to-one monitoring. And 24 hours after that, they might be transferred to the stroke unit. And a stroke unit, it is a specialised area of care. So it is specialised in stroke. So it means that everybody there, the full multidisciplinary team, the nurses, the focus is on stroke. It's not on respiratory or on palliative care per se, but it is on stroke. So the outcome for the stroke the person that has had a stroke is better if they do get to the stroke unit. Do we have many acute stroke wards in Ireland, in hospitals? In we Ireland? do at this stage. I think it's, they audited way back in 2009 and I think it's come up from about 1% right up. So I think we've about 23 at this stage. That's great. That really is great. Now, unfortunately, <clears throat> there is the other side of the coin, Fiona. Twenty uh, percent of stroke patients do not survive in Ireland, which equates to around about two thousand people a year. Uh, there is a good chance of one in five of us will have a stroke at one stage in our, at some stage in our life. Do you see the odds improving with new drugs? And certainly, technology is moving on. Do you think the odds are getting better that more of us are surviving? It's not even what I think. The facts are there. Do you know from the audits that have been done, the mortality and the number of people dying from strokes has definitely decreased. And also the number of people going to nursing homes has also decreased. But I suppose it was interesting. I think the Irish Heart Foundation back in, I think it was as far back as 2010, actually, um, there was a comment in one of their audits and it was the feeling from stroke survivors that, yes, their lives are being saved, only to be abandoned at the gates of the hospital. And I think reading that, it is about surviving, But I think it is about living also. And I think it's amazing that, yes, that the number of deaths from stroke is decreasing. And yes, the number of people going to nursing homes is decreasing. But I suppose we tend to forget at times is what people are struggling with once they actually leave the gates of the hospital. Yes, well, you know, in many ways you've done your job. They, they, they're, they're, they're walking, they're talking, they're, they're in perfect health leaving you. They've got their day appointments and, you know, they've got a plan in place. Now, I also know, and it did occur to me last night, you obviously liaise with families of, of uh, stroke victims or stroke survivors. And, you know, you, you share good news with them and you discuss procedures and progress and hopefully more good news than bad news. But it occurred to me last night that you must on occasion have to break bad news to families. And, you know, it has to have an effect on you. I think it definitely does. Yes, we. I think from the moment that you say to a patient's family or to the patient themselves, yes, this is a stroke, it is delivering bad news. They have their suspicions near straight away. But I think that impact of knowing that it's a stroke it is delivering bad news and you do ride a roller coaster ride I think with families from that moment and whether it is as we said about thrombolysis and thrombectomy whether they're going for that or they see a loved one flying off blue light to Beaumont for a thrombectomy it's it's a hard it's a hard route it's a waiting game for them do you know you do deliver the bad news that you know the likelihood that their their loved one is not going to make it and I think it is I think I suppose through experience and it is through good communication skills I think as well I'd see do you know our stroke reg delivering bad news do you know I tend to hang on after he's left and 
it is it generally is then the tears come and it's allowing it's given permission it's given permission for the families um do you know just to to cry to ask the daft questions that they might think are daft but they're by no means daft but I think once I've allowed that once I've done my best I tend to go home okay a lot of the time but I think you have a fair idea before you leave or once you leave the emergency department this has hit you hard and the good thing about I suppose where I work and the team I work with we tend to look out for each other and coffee Coffee is a it's great thing. Do you know, it's everything. answer to yes, a lot of yeah. things. So I think it is looking out for each other. But a family once said to me, they said to me, and it was only a few months ago, he met me outside the gates of the hospital and his da- he was given very, very bad news about his dad. And he just said to me, Fiona, how do you do it? He said, how do you do this every day? And I suppose uh, I walk, I get out of the, around the pitch and I walk and, you know, you have your laughs with your friends and you just deal with it the best you can. I have two kids at home. They keep me well occupied. And, you know, um, I asked my son, you know, recently, what do, do you know, what do I do if I have a hard day? And he says, you watch a film with me and we actually laugh out loud, do you know, at daft films with the rock in it that you'd never think you'd be watching in a million years. Nine-year-olds do that. Laugh out loud. That's great. What what roles do you think families should play uh, with, with stroke patients' recovery? What do you think families, their key role could be to, to, help, to help you and to help the patient? I think listening to people that come back after they've been discharged, you know, whether it be young people. And I think it's more young people that have the problem of that they're, I suppose, they're, their partner, their husband, their wife. Um, they've taken over that role of completely minding them, that they don't allow the person to do for themselves. They wrap them up in cotton wool. Um, it's very difficult at times because there can be complete role reversal. Do you know, the, if it was the husband that was the breadwinner, now that's no longer. So maybe the wife has to go out and work. Do you know, the husband wouldn't have stayed at home with the kids. And it's it's very complex. It's on an individual basis, I think. But it is... You, of course, you'll mind the person you love them, but it is actually, I suppose, walk along beside them rather than carry them, if that makes sense. Yes, yeah. Do you know, face, it is. Face it together. And the other thing is, I think I would always say the patient will be looked after. It is usually the carer that's not. So it is. Yeah, yes, it yeah. is to be mindful of themselves. Do you know, they'll be the ones that will burn out. It is not to give up their whole lives to look after you know, keep something aside for themselves. Well, so, you're adapting to new routines, exactly. things things you never had to think about before. And as you say, there can be role reversal. You you may have bills on your mind. You've got, how are we going to pay the mortgage? You know, you, you have a lot to juggle yeah. and a lot to go on with. I think the other thing as well is don't be afraid to ask for help. I think like in each stroke unit in the country, there's CNSs now in stroke. There's advanced nurse practitioners. They all have contact numbers. And I think sometimes all it takes is a phone call to steer people in the right direction again. Do you know, and even yesterday, it was a sister of a very young stroke patient and all she needed was that conversation to steer her right 
in the, you know, on her journey again. And she was just stuck in a rut with all of it. It happens so easy. It's just practical steps. Yeah, it does happen so easy, though, Fiona. They're, they're easy, easy pitfalls to fall, mm. fall into. Now, when it comes to long-term recovery, uh, perhaps you're adjusting to a disability or a weakness on one side of your body, which would be quite mm. common w- with stroke. Now, depression or anxiety is very common in patients when they get home. Is there, is there anything that we should do or is there any goal or routine we should promote to stop us uh, falling into this, maybe to overcome it? I don't know if it's routine or goal. I think uh, from what people say, it, it does creep up in you. If you, depression post-stroke, it is so common. I think it's, some some studies would say it's right up there, 60, 70%. Do you know, some would say 20%. But I think the more and more you hear back, you hear people talking about the bouts of anxiety that they do suffer, the bouts of depression that they suffer. Yes, that isolation. I think it is about, you can say ask for help. A lot of the times help isn't out there. But again, it might be a conversation with somebody. It might be steering two support groups. But again, it's age dependent. Do you know, you have the Irish Heart Foundation has stroke um, survivor support groups and they're around nationally. But again, they're more for that over 65 age group. It's a very different set of, I think, issues that the younger stroke survivor has to deal with. Um, it's a hard one because even if it is image, do you know, people might start to neglect themselves. They actually are more conscious of their body image. So going out with friends, if you're that young stroke survivor, do you know you're more conscious of all of those kind of things? You mightn't want to go out into those public settings, but you mightn't be able to ask your friends, look, can we just go to a quiet coffee shop? That post-stroke fatigue that you hear talked about so much. And again, that's right up to 40 to 50 percent of stroke survivors. People have the energy and friends, as you said there, Jerry, tend to give up asking after a while. You know, I'm too tired to go out. I'm too tired to meet for the coffee. So there's only so many, you know, times that they listen to that. So I don't know what the answer is. Answer is. I think with regarding to the depression and anxiety, counselling is there. We have some counselling available. works. Counselling works, you know. Work. And sometimes that is all that needs to diffuse, you know, what you, your problem. Um, it's just communicating your, your concerns and your issues. Um, and counselling, by all means, you know, I know there's lots of stroke people listening to us now mm. and their families are listening. And believe me, it works. And it's not... You're not giving in to something or letting yourself down or, you know, um, there is nothing wrong with it. And it's so common. Don't even think that it isn't. You know, you're not the first person to have a stroke. You won't be the last. And everything you're going through, I can assure you, hundreds, thousands of people have gone through already. Mm. You know, so do I. That is the one piece of advice that I could give anybody. Talk to to somebody, talk to people, let them know where you are in yourself. And I think it is. I think somebody once said it was when they left hospital, they felt as if they were let out into the big white sea, that they had no way to navigate. And I think if a number was even given to somebody before they left hospital, do you know, to make contact if they feel the need arises. I think that's of huge benefit. But the sad thing is the support services are not out there. Do you know, the counselling services 
are not out there. It's very hard for somebody that would have had a stroke to pay out 50, 60 euros per counselling session if they've now they're unemployed because you know nearly I'd say I think it's in around a quarter of young people who have a stroke regardless of the level of disability never go back to work. And that's staggering. As far as I know there are 37,000 people in Ireland who've had strokes Mm. and not returned to work. And that's not due to disability. That is due to confidence, post-stroke fatigue, concentration levels. And so then you're asking people to pay 50, 60 euros. And I think there's very little research out there, but the research is it's short, brief intervention. So six sessions might see the people through. So maybe a crisis comes in their lives again, they might need those six sessions again. So it's short intervention, short, brief intervention. And well, speaking of people get, getting involved in things like that, I know you were very pro this because uh, the Irish Stroke Association, under the umbrella of the Irish Heart Foundation, which is a great source of information on stroke and recovery, their Facebook page is great if people want to check it out. Now, I know you raised, a, you had a fundraiser. Was it last year or the year before? It was the year before. The year before. So you had this idea for the fundraiser for the cognitive rehabilitation course and other projects mm. for counselling uh, to help people recover from their strokes. Now, tell me about this idea how you came up with it and how did you how did you get people's money how did you mug people (laughs) (laughs) so it was actually the Irish Heart Foundation were running a series of luncheons nationally um, and they were fundraisers so we were approached by the Irish Heart Foundation would would we be interested and it was one of our own consultants then wrote um, a few of us in as people do and we get to say yes Um, what happened was there was one stipulation we said we want to raise it for our people locally. So it was for the psychological support of our own stroke survivors because I suppose in our own area there was absolutely nothing. We could get some sessions from the Irish Heart Foundation but again the funds were limited. So we said what we raised through our fundraiser we were keeping locally. So a lot of work went into it and we had a luncheon in the Monastery Boy saying you know it is it's just in Drogheda and it was hugely successful and that has managed to pay for counselling sessions for the last I think it's actually two years now and also a full cognitive rehab group um, which consisted of 16 sessions for 10 people so the outcomes what is so impressive with all of this is we used a counsellor psychotherapist Sinead Crawley who has huge experience in acquired brain injury Ireland and should have helped set up our stroke survivor groups in, in the Louth area as well so she has I suppose audited our outcomes because we said you know we don't want this we want it to work do you know where this money because the people of Louth were so so generous Louth, me calf and those that came together um, were so generous in the amount that they actually contributed the, we wanted to put something that worked so our outcomes from the counselling and from the cognitive rehab have been very very impressive they have helped a lot of people Well I'm one of them I can I can put my hand up and say without a doubt yeah. it was it was money well spent and, mm. and time well spent it was yeah. four months that every week I left yeah. RD driving home I was enlightened I was um, very happy and I knew something that I didn't know from that morning, do you know? Yeah. Um, and I had met other people and shared their stories, which, you know, was, was fantastic. So let me let me just thank you because um, you, you went to a lot of trouble and I hope that, you know, more funds do come uh, And I suppose it available. is. 
and you know it's never one person like us we like to say there's no I in team but I think it is down to the community it's the generosity of the community that has made it happen really and even with the cognitive rehab group the amount of like RD library gave the facility it was super value in RD you know refreshments deliver them down free of charge the credit union in RD the whole community got involved it was fantastic do you think is this a new way of thinking that maybe um, the HSE should maybe uh, adapt some kind of a plan I would have worked my first stroke unit Jerry back in 1999 and we were talking about the post stroke depression stats back then and it was in around 40% then and we've been talking about it since then. Um, I think fundraising is not the way to go forward long term because it's not sustainable for a stroke CNS and stroke team to be organising fundraisers. So yes, I think the HSE needs to be seriously thinking about the long term because I suppose even from an economic point of view, Young stroke survivors are not getting back into employment. Do you know, it is the money has been drained from elsewhere. Do you know, if they put the funds into whether it be cognitive rehab groups, whether it be counselling. But again, it's not just throwing money at, I suppose, things there's no evidence behind. So we have to prove that these things are working. Um instead of just throwing money blankly at different different services. Well, they, so there's they, that they certainly well. do work, Fiona. I read recently in an article in the Irish Times that stroke cases in Ireland, they could increase by 35% by the year 2035. Is this a sign of modern lifestyles, do you think? With regard, I suppose, anything you pick up now about our obesity levels, about, I suppose, the lack of exercise Second strokes can be prevented by about 80% if we really looked at the modifiable risk factors. But people don't. Do you know the, I suppose, the exercise, the diet, all of those things that we could change without taking a pill, we don't tend to change. Do you know, um, even from a blood pressure point of view, I suppose, even I suppose encouraging people to know if they have issues with regarding taking medication, don't just stop it, discuss it with somebody first. And I think even one of the biggest contributing, even say for that first stroke and preventing a blood pressure, there's a lot of people out there that, you know, they feel, oh, do you know what? I feel fine. I'll stop the blood pressure tablets. There's a side effect from it for, I suppose, men, erectile dysfunction. They say, look at my sex life is more important than having to put up with um, taking a blood pressure tablet. They stop it instead of discussing it. Do you know, there's lots of reasons. Cost, they don't feel any side effects while, do you know, they're taking it. They don't feel that their blood pressure is up. They stop it. So I think it is, it's all around medication compliance as well. So do you think we fall back into the old habits we had before we had the stroke? Most definitely. Really? And I think it is the smoking, it is the diet, it's the exercise. And I would say if you audit it, you know, even say of your own group jury, of those that are actually out walking, recommend daily exercise. If you blood pressure, they're all taking blood pressure medication. But I would say, you know, if they had side effects that haven't been discussed, they could easily just stop them, you know, and you, you see it again and again. Goodness me. 
I, I'm surprised with that one. I really am because when you've been through so much, you would, you know, you certainly don't want to go through it again. Um, and if there are simple and it's, steps. it's hard though, Jerry. It's lack at times motivation. It's energy. It is lack of insight. There's a lot. It's 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 not just one thing. It's a lot of contributing factors. Well, clinical nurse and specialist in stroke, Fiona Connington, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you so much for your help throughout our shows and thank you for taking the time to come in and talk to us. Thank you. Next week on the Strokecast, cognitive rehabilitation expert, Dr. Neve Rowe. This has been a sudden onset of an event, a traumatic event that has changed your life. Um, and it's a, it's quite a lot for you to actually deal with it. A brain injury is known as a hidden form of a disability because there's a lot that goes on inside that we don't see. The individual needs to be talking about what they're experiencing and how they're feeling. Get in touch on Twitter at Strokecast IRL or on Facebook. The Strokecast is produced and presented by Jerry Stevens. The executive producer is Al Dunn. It's created by Unique Media.